Before we start this podcast, we would like to take the opportunity to mention that we now have a Patreon page where you can help to support, evolve and continue these compassionate conversations. Please visit patreon.com slash voce dialogues for more information. Welcome everyone to the Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution. I'm Chloe Goodchild, the founder of The Naked Voice. And I am here to welcome you to our online community, which is an opportunity for us to evolve and to inquire, to deepen and inspire our understanding of the nature of compassion and compassionate action and its transformative impact in the world. I'm particularly interested in exploring this theme with the lives and hearts and minds and teachings of poets, artists, writers, musicians and philosophers, teachers and social entrepreneurs and activists. I am so privileged to be speaking with Andrew Harvey, As many of you will, of course, know, Andrew Harvey is an internationally renowned religious scholar, writer and teacher, and the author of more than 40 books, including The Hope, The Son of Man and Savage Grace with Carolyn Baker. Born in South India in 1952, he just beat me by a year, (laughs) has devoted much of his life to studying the world's mystical traditions, including intensive study of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Sufi mysticism. Just to add at this point that it's been my great pleasure to actually join you, Andrew, in the UK, where we've just recorded an album to accompany your latest book, Turn Me to Gold. I would adore to just to simply talk with you in these virtual dialogues around the theme of compassion. And perhaps we could begin with that theme as it relates to Kabir and your great love and study of that mighty poet for our time. Well, first of all, darling, thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm thrilled to be with you, especially as I'm still reeling from your fabulous, wild, unfettered, gorgeous singing in the session that we did of Turning to Gold, it was a huge privilege to hear you at your wildest and calmest. And I cannot tell you how thrilled I am that the CD will be coming out soon. Kabir has been an obsession of mine now for 40 years. I first met Kabir in Benares in the temple with an old man singing wildly. And I went up to him and said, what are you singing? And he said, Kabir, of course, and walked out. And I hadn't heard of Kabir before that moment. But then I plunged into Kabir. And about five years ago, I decided that I was going to devote myself intensely and completely to exploring the whole range of Kabir's work and selecting 108 poems that would truly represent this glorious vision of divine embodiment, compassion in action that motivates everything that Kabir ever did. It was a very, very intense experience because as I explored all the different versions of Kabir as I use my smattering of Hindi and it is only a smattering to try and enter into the field of Kabir and as I worked in French and 
Italian and German on different ways, I came to comprehend that Kabir's form of compassion is what I would call prophetic compassion. And prophetic compassion has a very tender side, but it also has a very ferocious side. Because Kabir's kind of compassion is the compassion of an Elijah or an Isaiah or a prophet, like the prophet, peace be upon him. It's the compassion that says, on the one hand, you are deluded and blind and burning to death in illusion. And says, on the other hand, you can be something far, far more amazing than you could possibly imagine. You can be, in fact, turned to gold, hence the title, turned into a divine human being, engoldened in your mind and heart and body. If only you love enough and if only you surrender deeply enough to the majesty and passion of the mystery and the unknowable but experience experienceable glory of the divine. Beautiful, my goodness me, absolutely. And is there one particularly that you might even want to share with us right now? Well, there is, and I think this really goes to the core of what Kabir is trying to communicate, and it's only five lines, but it's such an astonishing five lines that I think you can actually spend your whole life not only meditating on the depth of what he's saying, but trying raggedly and grandly to enact it. And this is actually the poem that introduces the last movement, the fourth movement, which is the movement of engoldenment. My father is the absolute Godhead. My mother is the embodied Godhead, and I am their divine child dancing for them both on their burning dance floor. That's it. That's everything. That's the whole enchilada. And that's the complete revelation beyond religion and dogma, because what Kabir realizes is something that you and I have talked a great deal about, and experienced something of in our own lives, what Kabir realizes and expresses is that every single human being has as father, as fundamental progenitor, the divine light consciousness, Satchitananda, being consciousness, bliss. And every human being also has as mother, the embodied Godhead, And as you know, the Hindus have an amazing set of images to describe the interpenetrating, intercommuning nature of the absolute and the reality created out of the absolute. The Hindu mystics of the sacred marriage say that the father, the divine light, you could say, is the diamond and the mother is the shining of the diamond, the energies that that diamond emanates, which then create all of the different universes and live in the tiniest flea and the greatest whale and the supernovas. That's the truth of our nature. And the tragedy of human beings has been that they haven't really been able in any of the mystical systems to truly bring together the depth and height of transcendence with the utter precision and presence of complete radical embodiment. One of the glories of your work, it seems to me, is that it is 
totally transcendent because you know and adore the transcendent through your own inmost experiences. But it's also completely embodied because through releasing the voice and experiencing the different tonalities that the voice makes possible, people can be drawn into an ever more exquisite, ever more vibrant experience of presence, which initiates you over time into the utterly bewildering but utterly amazing mystery of being the child both of utter transcendence and utter immanence that's so this is the key to the next level of human evolution we're being taken through this experience of a global dark night mm-hmm. into a shattering of all of the dualities all of the separations between body and mind masculine and feminine light and matter to experience what we would call, I think, the quantum field, which is utterly transcendent and utterly embodied, so that we can become empowered, radiant, active, mischievous, playful, vibrant, divine children. (laughs) You know, the divine child in all of the religious traditions is seen as the ultimate. It's not the guru or the sage that is the ultimate. Mm. As Ramakrishna said, the ultimate realization is to know that you're a divine child and that mummy's at home. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's, it's that original innocence, isn't it, that really has to be remembered and discovered within oneself, which really involves taking and understanding how we can skillfully shift from a dualistic way of communicating into this, as you say, highly, totally embodied, compassionate, humble level and depth of communication that is older and deeper than the polarity of all conflict. It's older and deeper than the desire to be seen, to be believed, to be loved, to be famous, to be glorified. You know, it's, it's it's a level of compassion that is able to give voice and to share voice, which is what I love so much about your work, is that dedication through poetry and through all the books you've been unfolding and revealing on the theme of sacred activism and so on, that really are assisting people to access the skills required to move through the terror of actually accessing your own authentic, compassionate voice. And it's so, really growing the voice of love, isn't it? Being born into love's body. Love. So that your whole voice can sound. Mm-hmm. And so that that whole voice, which is love voicing itself, yes. can resonate. Yes. The one thing that I would stress, my darling, and I think this is important, is that mm-hmm. when you're talking about compassionate communication in mm-hmm. this exalted and grounded way, mm-hmm. you're not just talking about deep listening you're not just talking about profound respect for the other Mm -hmm. you are also talking about authenticity which can lead you as it leads kabir to be groundedly very fierce on occasions because compassion has two faces it has if you like mary's face the nourishing protecting listening embracing face mm-hmm. the kuan yin face and kuan yin is the one who listens tenderly to all the cries of the world but it also has when it's appropriate and only when it's appropriate a kali face because it's not compassionate to 
let people go on in their delusions. It's not compassionate to support people in their misogyny or homophobia or patriarchal authoritarianism. Mm. Great skill, it seems to me, which arises naturally when you are in a unified field, when you are the divine child dancing for them both on their burning dance floor. The great, great skill is to be taken by the rhythm of the conversation in such a way that if it is appropriate to be laser-like, you are prepared to be laser-like. I would love to know how this understanding showed up in your life. Well, I can tell you, give you an example. I mean, you've, you've said to me certain things in the course of our conversations together, which have been tremendously helpful to me. Because one day you said, look, Andrew, you're very passionate and your message is extremely important. But if you could lower the voltage to (laughs) 3%, people would be able to hear you better. And it was, I didn't take it as an insulting remark. I took it as the mark of a great musician of the heart, Mm. tuning my heart Mm. to be more effective in really reaching people. And I really absorbed it as I absorbed it in the recording when you said it was fabulous what we did when we, when we were in concert, but Mm -hmm. it won't work in a recording because you can't just go wild. We've got to modulate this. Yes. That to me is a perfect example of the kind of communication that we're talking about because A, we completely respect and honor each other. B, we love each other. B, we both know that we have completely different but deeply aligned gifts so that when you talk to me like that, I receive it. And when I suggest to you things that, as I did when we were recording, you don't say, oh, my God, who are you to talk to me like that? You you get that I'm in service of the glory of your art. It's a friendship of the soul, isn't it? We're talking about a friendship of the soul rather than... friendship of the personality that is just there to sort of narcissistically have the other person shine and just see only their own face in the mirror so to speak absolutely because neither of us at the stage of our lives are at all interested in watching our own reflection in the mirror my god we're trying to use the gifts that the divine has given us to inspire and embolden and awake people and that requires great skill and both of us Perhaps in my case, despite myself, I've now come to a place where that skill is available. But I need tuning. We all need tuning. We need tuning from our soul friends who've done the work to steep themselves in love's wine. Absolutely. And where do you feel for yourself this understanding is leading you now? Where, Where is your attention being led with this understanding of the power of compassion and how to deliver that, how to bring that into the world through practices? or Oh, oh God, this is such a great question. I'll tell you honestly where it's leading me. Mm. It's leading me to an understanding that everyone I'm talking to when I'm talking about the great global night and the necessity of birthing a new humanity and the necessity of putting love into action, which is the message that I've been entrusted to give and to sustain. Everyone is profoundly traumatized and deeply shocked by the extent and extremity of this exploding situation. It really does now promise 
potentially extinction. After all, we just had the United Nations report that we may have 12 years at the utmost yes. in which to change everything to deal with the collapsing climate. And yesterday came out this devastating report about wildlife and the million species, million species yes. now on the verge of extinction. We've got to wake up, but people are not going to be woken up if they're not held relatedly. So what I'm discovering is a wholly new way of speaking. And the speaking has to come from a deep maternal, paternal compassion, a deep elderhood, a sacred profound cherishing of everyone so that when I speak, I feel committed to holding everyone before I deliver the fiery stuff that I've been mm. condemned and <laughs> condemned to deliver. <laughs> so it's really this very deep tuning. And the only way I can describe it in myself is a musical way. I feel that I'm being taken from Beethoven to Bach in myself. Beethoven is explosive and amazing. But Bach, it's got that sobriety, which enables you to be penetrated even more deeply by the deep message of divine love that radiates through Bach. Mm -hmm. so I'm trying to bark myself so that I can be more available. And of course, for me, the great image of somebody who's brilliant at this, and brilliant is the wrong word, who's perfect at this, is the Dalai Lama, because everyone feels so totally loved and respected and held in his presence that he could say the most penetrating things in such a way that people have a real chance. Mm -hmm. If you're a spiritual teacher with real responsibility at this time, you cannot avoid telling people that we are facing potentially extinction unless we make major shifts. But you must also represent in your very being and in the way you tell them the utmost compassion, because that's the only way in which so necessarily austere mm. and radiant a message can get through. I remember sitting near, just next door to the, the, the Dalai Lama, His Holiness, when he was being asked to speak on the journey, Christ's journey from the tomb after the resurrection wow. uh, to the, the, the rainbow body and what the meaning of resurrection was all about. And it was the most extraordinary moment where I was being required to sing in such a way as the Buddhists and the Christians could actually uh, absorb and hear what he was sharing from a Buddhist perspective of wow. Christ's disappearance into the illumination of the rainbow body of light. Um, for, <laughs> oh, just that, yeah. <laughs> which for the Christians you could see it was just absolutely exquisite, you know, because no one ever really told modern day church Christians what actually happens after right. you know, and I always always found that very very frustrating myself that it was always it was all about the crucifixion and then that incredible Bach, you know, that incredible chorus in in the Passion, you know. La, da, da, da. Lord, they were wild. Yeah, Lord, um, Bach is all about the resurrection in the end, isn't it? I right. mean, mind, all his music is, there's a deep exploration of suffering, but it's archetypal suffering, and it leads always right. to the revelation of triumph, the embodied divine human. And the Buddhists, I, you know, I wrote the, co-wrote the book, Tibetan Book of Living and Dying for Sogyal, and one of the most amazing days, I can still remember it really, really 
is when Kensi Rinpoche and the other great Rinpoches we were speaking with described quite sort of matter-of-factly what happens in the transmutation of matter into the rainbow body. And I realized that Buddhism has developed these techniques in a way that Christianity hasn't, although there were certain great saints in Christianity who went through what is called the theosis process, oh. transfiguration process. And I was fortunate enough to have a master, B. Griffith, not a master, a beloved, yes. living this in before my eyes. Oh, I love that interview that you had with him and his response to being drowned. Was it almost like uh, my memory is of him speaking of being drowned or completely enveloped in the sacred feminine and that, and that awareness of... Oh, God, it was amazing. Yeah. It was, he was, he'd had a heart attack. He'd come to the edge of death. And instead of dying, he'd been invaded. I'm being possessed by love. And later uh-huh. he knew that it was the mother coming into him to ground him, to make him in the Kabir poem, the child of the embodied mother, as well as the child of the father. He'd been largely patriarchal, largely addicted to the light up to that moment, but he discovered the mother, the black Madonna, and that initiated him, that marriage initiated him into the transfiguration field, which he then lived and could express in ways that were so humble and simple that they'd completely changed my understanding of human evolution and of the Christ. Because one day he said to me, look, there have been two big bangs. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> one big bang created the universe. I said, yes. And then he said the resurrection was the second big bang because that was the release of a new extreme and extraordinary energy that fuses matter and spirit and that that's destined to transfigure the human into the divine human and, in fact, elevate the whole of matter in the way that Teilhard de Chardin came clearest to dis- deciphering and expressing when he talks about us going to Omega Point, the whole universe being in this amazing, astounding process of being taken through level after level after level into the final fusion of matter and spirit in a way that, of course, none of us can understand but can begin to begin to glimpse. I love that. This is discovering fire for the second time, isn't it? All of that. Exactly. It's an embodied fire, though, isn't it? You know that. Yes, we've been very, very blessed to be thrown into that fire. I'm very aware as I'm talking with you, and of course this is such precious territory for our conversation, of how we can possibly bow down. First of all, asking forgiveness of, of the children of the world. And then secondly, How might we begin to have this conversation with these extraordinary children, these extraordinary young people who are coming forward and just saying, hey, guys, the show's over. We we are now coming in and we really need you all to wake up. Well, I tell you something, my darling. I go a lot to speak to kids and university people, because I know they are the generation that are going to have to bear the full brunt of all of the madness that has been created. Mm. And I always begin by saying, 
I hear you. We failed. We belong to a generation that was too narcissistic. But I also want you to hear something about me and the people like me. We didn't bow to that narcissism. We raged and we railed against it in ourselves and we did the best we could to speak up against it in the culture. I wish we'd been able to transform the culture more, but we're here for you and mm -hmm. our hands are outstretched mm -hmm. to honor you, to respect you, to hear your voice and to do whatever we can to support you as you go forward. Mm -hmm. And then I say to them, I know it may be very difficult for you to understand and I respect your rage at all that we haven't accomplished. But I promise you that we do know something that might be valuable to you, ways of practicing direct communion with the divine that are going to give you strength and stamina and hope and joy as you face the biggest evolutionary crisis humanity has ever faced. And every time I've spoken like that, I've had the most astonishing response because they get that I get their rage. They get that I understand my own responsibility for that rage. I wish I could have been... I don't know how I could have done more, but I wish I had been able to do more to shift the culture. But I think they, through that communication, that compassion, they also get that the elders have something that they need. I think it's the straight talk, isn't it? It's the honesty. It's the direct yes. speak. It's the, the willingness to say, speak the truth and to say, we have, as you say, we have failed we are now coming forth to really explore with you clearly how we can support you with the uh, practices that we have used in our own lives so that we can really explore how our voices, how our connection with our contemplative voices, our creative voices, our con compassionate voices can really come together in this triadic trinity of experience that you started out with that you started out this conversation with of the mother the divine mother the divine father and the child the divine child yes because the danger is my darling is that they 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 and you can't blame them for this is that they're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater they're going to in their rage at the imperfections of what they've inherited imperfections too small a word they'll also reject spirituality at the deepest level because they're going to need the deep spiritual sources of strength. And that's why I created this movement, this global movement, Sacred Activism, because I know and you know that the activism that's going to be required for the next step is one that has to be grounded in deep spiritual connection with the divine beyond religion and dogma, which is another reason why I spent five years creating Turn Me to Gold, because Kabir is the greatest radical revolutionary that humanity has ever seen. He's saying... Go beyond the religions, get beyond dogma, make direct connection with the one in divine devotion to the divine so that the divine can take you into your divine humanity. Mm. We need to be able to give to them because if they go into the forest fire of this extreme crisis without the wonderful simple techniques that you have created and without the practices that I've garnered from all of the different mystical traditions and tested myself and tested in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of activist groups all over the planet, they're not going to be able to stay strong enough in the overwhelming, terrible crisis.
Mm. You know, Marianne Whitman said to me at the end of her life, she said, if you go into this crisis without a spiritual practice of very deep kind, it's like walking into a forest fire dressed in a paper tutu. You don't want Greta Thunberg to burn out. Absolutely, absolutely. You so see, that connection with these with the triadic nature of sound, sound as silence, sound as the spoken voice, and sound as the sung soul, these these dimensions of communication are obviously clearly all ways. They create a structure and a conduit within which the body itself, you know, becomes a vessel, a temple of sound, and a sound that is connecting the inner with the interactive, with the infinite is, is, so you've got those three realms. And of course, as you rightly say, many children right now without those skills will just be reactive and enraged. You know, they right. who can blame them for that, but they need elders like you and I to say, we get it. We are enraged too, but we've been working on that because rage is not, rage alone is not enough. It has to be sacred outrage, divine ferocity, not just human ferocity, because it simply won't work in this situation. It's much too serious not to be met with the fully embodied divine human self, which is what your work is helping us into. And that marvelous triadic definition that you give is a really perfect one because unless you're grounded in the silence of the presence in your body, mm. how can you voice your authentic self with clarity? Mm-hmm. And how can your soul find the words, let alone the sounds, to communicate truth? And it's it's um it's we plunged in we've plunged in this conversation very deep into the whole territory of the fear of the voice, how we respond to the voice, how that shows up our terror, not only of our own sound, but of death itself. And the spirituality, the the practices that we've been blessed to share and that we're now sharing in this new way with uh, these collaborations through the poetry together are really offering us an opportunity to really communicate how the uh, illusion of death is... It's an illusory doorway. It's it's a right. dark illusion, you know. This and and yet we are so bought into it because we're still operating in this kind of two D dualistic, for and against, up and down, higher, lower, good, bad level of communication. Exactly, but you have to experience that deathlessness. You can't just talk about it. Right. And that's what your work helps. And that's one of the reasons why I actually spent all this time on Kabir because one of the deep deep passions that drove me was my own discovery that Kabir himself is a perfectly voiced being. He is voicing the divine truth in his absolutely naked, simple way, in exactly the way that is needed for our time. I believe that we've had this great Rumi Renaissance, which has prepared us, as it prepared me, to receive the absolute skinny without any mask that Kabir gives us. So I myself have attuned my voice not only through singing, which I do, and through my love of music, but also through really plunging into the greatest of all universal mystics. And there really are three of them for me. This is my Jesus, Rumi, and Kabir. Because when I do 
tune myself, my whole being, my body, my soul, my voice, to those three, I find that they ennoble and elevate and calm and ground and purify and laser focus me. I should just say at this point how grateful I am to you, Andrew, because it was, it was your book, Love's Fire, that was my first introduction to Rumi back in the 1980s. And guess what? I've just literally opened up your Kabir book on the page where it says, everyone goes on dying and dying, but no one dies a true death. Kabir has met with death never to die again. Everyone goes on dying, dying without a second thought. My death, says Kabir, is an artful death. Now that really makes my hair stand on it. The rest die and rot. And it's that art form that sound is, of course. Exactly. assists us to realize there is no death because we are living this seamless sutra of life. Yes, but this is something that needs to be, as it, as it has been in you, you didn't just sit in the bath and discover this sound. Yeah, it came well, out of your own deepest transcendental and imminent awakening. You did experience again and again the sacred marriage. Mm-hmm. And out of that came this astounding clear structure that you created, just as out of my own experience of the sacred marriage beyond religion has come the 40 books that I poured out. This is what they're all about. We are so blessed, aren't we? Because I'm sitting here talking with you and I'm thinking, how did any of this happen? <laughs> it's just, well, just, it's, you know, what I possibly say is grace. I feel grace. beyond blessed. I feel so, so humbled and, and grace-filled. By God, it's the beloved. I mean, I'm on my knees to the beloved for the life that the beloved has given me, especially now because I, you know, it's been an agonizing and difficult life in some ways. But look at the joy that it has engendered in my late 60s. And I think the same is for you. Absolutely. No, it's so evident. I really see that in you, having known you all these years. It's such a joy to be in this conversation with you now, 40 years later, you know. Um, Yes. We've seen each other through many transformations, haven't we? <laughs> I remember um, when it was in 1987 when I first started having those dreams of Anandamai, the, one of the great luminaries of 20th century India. Oh, my God, the greatest, the greatest imaginable being. Oh. <laughs> and I remember one of the things she said is, you know, the life we're living is a life of gradual revelation and grace and we have to be willing to surrender ourselves to both streams in order that that the self-revelation is possible because unless we make effort, nothing happens. But if we think that we're the ones that are making the effort, then nothing certainly will happen. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> say you can't win illumination except by tears and blood, but the tears and blood don't get the illumination. That's sheer grace. <laughs> and it's a wonderful way of putting it, isn't it? And we know the truth of that. Because what arrives is so much greater and more wonderful than anything you could possibly have imagined. But you have to do the work. You have to continue to do the work humbly, yeah. humbly and humbly. Yeah. Oh, boy, oh, boy. And I, I mean, I really see the appearance and the voices of these children that we've just been exploring and just uh, reflecting on their role in this and how we relate to them you know, as such a grace. Every time I see Greta Thunberg or, you know, the, the, these other extraordinary young people 
who are really not taking this sitting down anymore and not just, you know, hiding anymore or cowering behind the fact that they may be on the spectrum. They are people who are really using their divine madness, really. You know, they're not, there's right. nothing in the way. Absolutely. But you and I have been divinely mad too. We know, we recognize the symptoms. Yes. And I want to say about Greta Thunberg is that one of the things that absolutely shakes me to my core when she speaks is that she speaks so calmly yeah. and such deadly precision, but also with such embracing compassion because you can tell that she doesn't hate the people who've done all of this. Right. She's saying it's time to stop. And she's also welcoming those who want to transform themselves into partnership. Yeah. That to me is perfect compassionate communication. It's that razor edge focus, isn't it? That yes. she that she that, that that that's leading her, that's driving her, that is not going to swerve, isn't it's it? It's a divine child prophet voice. Lovely. And Lovely. it's very Kabir like. If you really think about what makes Kabir such a supreme guide to this new compassionate communication, it is that he unites the deepest love with the fiercest clarity and that that produces a mystery of absolutely razor-sharp, profoundly compassionate, profoundly wise, profoundly warning and empowering communication. That's the tone we all need to rouse each other and to encourage each other as we go forward into the biggest evolutionary crisis of our entire human experience. It's huge, isn't it? And it's let's let's just, as we're coming to a completion together in this first conversation together, um, first conversation online, I mean, to really just be aware of, we've also alluded in this conversation to um, the role of longing and hunger. Oh, yes. You know, hunger to wake up that you know that and hunger for awakening absolutely um, yeah yeah and how what an essential ingredient that is along with that razor edge intention which brings the discernment brings the clear choice and the humility yeah humility and the transparency that we are all being drawn home to andrew i, I am love that you say that because at the key of Kabir is that amazing phrase, without intense devotion, all your practices are nothing. Wow. Devotion keeps you always on your knees because you come to realize as experience deepens that there will always be more. And you'll only ever be able to experience that more if you're in a state of the deepest possible longing, the deepest possible devotion. Mm-hmm. And that that will keep you humble so that you can be empty enough to receive that more, which will always come to those who remain on their knees in adoration. Absolutely. Well, I am so grateful to you and to this conversation. I'm glad that I used the word dialogue for this because dialogue is like a musical improvisation. Yes. Between people, isn't it? And so this improvisation. It's jazz, isn't it? <laughs> and it you know really. That wonderful word the um, Sufis have, Sochbet. Oh, yes. In Sufism, it said that there are three ways of attaining awakening. The first is obviously prayer, which is wonderful. And then there is contemplation at the deepest level. And then, highest of all, there is sohbet, the communion of souls. Because when two lovers speak in love, in embodiment, with their full voices, then 
something amazing takes place. And then the presence arrives as a kind of child between the two. And that's what really hones the whole journey. I love that. And I love you. And I re- I'm just so glad that you are alive on this planet at this time. Thank you so much. What a soul friendship we are blessed to know together. Yes, we are. God, um, I love you so much, Chloe. And your work just continues to astonish me and awe me. Thank you for all the work you've brought out and continue to pour out. And I think what's wonderful is that we both feel we're just beginning. This terrible situation is actually galvanizing us to be more joyful, more creative, more productive, to pour ourselves out more wisely. And that's thrilling to me to see someone else dancing more wildly and calmly as the burning dance floor burns more and more. (laughs) Well, long may it continue. We are in this great blessing together, on this journey together. clearly have much work to share together in the future uh, around this whole theme of longing and the soul friendship and devotion and the nature of devotion for our time and its role and purpose and i just thank you so much i bow to you and i bow to this opportunity that we share to wake up on this planet at this extraordinary time in the evolution of humanity and thank you so much for your insights god bless Oh